0: to Jeremiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 5. And it's about Jerusalem's godlessness. Jerusalem's godlessness, which leads to their judgment, to the judgment of God. The emphasis in chapter 4 of Jeremiah is on the enemy coming from the north. If you remember from chapter 4, verse 6, there was an imminent um, judgment coming by God again uh, Israel's enemy Uh, in chapter 5 now we see the enemy within and here's a terrible charge that's made against the people of Jerusalem by Jeremiah really and it's about their godlessness now it may be that Jeremiah is proving God to be right in the eyes of the people because a lot of times the people they well what did I do what's going on why is God doing this well Jeremiah might be proving that right here in their eyes you know proving God and his, and his, you know, justification for the horrible punishment that's being described in chapter 4. Jehovah God would have gladly forgiven them. God loves to get, forgive us of our sins. He, he's not willing that any man should perish. And God would have gladly forgiven the people if his people had showed even the slightest bit of honest decency, moral decency. But they've all turned their ears off. Plugged their ears, weren't listening. They deliberately disobeyed the law of God, especially in the marriage relation, including the typical one between man and woman, as the type between the people and his God and its God. That clearly uh, has been disregarded, as we read in Hosea chapter four one. And because the people wouldn't listen to God's word, God told Jeremiah to act out his message. <clears throat> And this is the first of at least 10 action sermons found in Jeremiah. And this chapter deals with several sins of the people of Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 6 deals with one of them here, and that was their godliness. I'm sorry, ungodliness. Verses 1 through 6 deals with their ungodliness. Again, one of the charges, one of the reasons for the, the, the judgment that's coming against them. Let's look at verse 1 now of chapter 5. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, see now and know, and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Again, God really wants to pardon his children. So what does God do? He sends Jeremiah on a search throughout the city to find one righteous man. The word righteous here in verse 1 describes an individual who has done what's right and just before God and man. And the command in verse 1 is given to run up and down the street, every street in Jerusalem. Look high and low, look under every rock, behind every tree, just to find one righteous, one honest man. Again, God's showing his eagerness to forgive. He wants to forgive. And he waits. Notice, go, you know, run through the streets of Jerusalem. Run up, look, look under every rock. Look for anywhere you can to find this, this one man. And he says, I'll wait before I bring judgment. I will wait. He waits to show his grace. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, God says, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. You see, when God waits... Or makes us wait. It may be because he may have a better gift for you than the one that you may be asking him for. The first move towards giving forgiveness comes from God. Even before men want it. God is always the initiator. God began to move in my life to forgive me of my sins before I even knew it, before I even wanted it. And he will look for even the smallest reason to forgive if one righteous man or woman can be found, God will forgive. And in this case, you tell Jeremiah, if one righteous man can be found, I will forgive the whole city. Sodom and Gomorrah would have been spared for 10 righteous men. Lot was God's way of saving Zoar, a city in Gomorrah. The, the, the one man, Jesus Christ, assures salvation for the whole world. He's that one man. There's hope for the city. Where just one righteous man lives. Because he might be the only instrument to lead others back to righteousness. And on this one principle, God acts in forgiving. All that he requires is a safe, justifiable reason to give. To forgive. He says to Jeremiah, if you can find a righteous man, I will pardon her. Her being Jerusalem. Now, why didn't Abraham keep on asking God for Sodom and Gomorrah? Because, you see, he stopped praying after he had asked God to spare the city for 10 righteous men. He couldn't find even 10 righteous men. God would have saved the city for one righteous man. He had to get get that one man, Lot, out of the city before he could destroy it. Now, think about this. Think about how important your testimony is. Or how important it might be in your city, in Kavina or wherever you live, in your community, your neighborhood. Because you might be the only witness for God to a lot of people. Are you faithful, a faithful witness when you're given that chance? And, and I look at that at a, at, in a bigger way. And how many people have you heard, including myself, And I'd love to move out of California because it's a dark place. It's a wicked place. What happens when we leave? Guess what? It becomes darker, more evil. That's exactly what Satan would want. We are a light in a dark place. And you know, we're the only hope to the Lord Jesus Christ. By witnessing to those praying that the Lord would break through to those who are living in darkness. You see, changing a nation doesn't start with the president or whatever party you belong to. Changing a nation starts with the church. The psalmist said in Psalm 144, 144, 15, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. In God's covenant with Israel, he promised them victory over the enemy. Peace and prosperity and a happy life. But it's sad. Because that nation rebelled against Jehovah and they lost all those blessings when they went into Babylonian captivity. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Why? Because he cares for us personally and he delivers us uh, uh, and abundantly blesses us the gospel begins to change social structures by changing the people within those structures listen to luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 14 i'll read it to you from new living translation it's when they when the people were being uh being re- were, were being saved and john the baptist was baptizing them and then they came to the, to the crowds came to John the Baptist and they asked him, John, what should we do now, now that we're saved? John replied, well, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. He said, even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked John, teacher, what should we do? He said, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Soldiers came to him. And they said, John, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Notice how the change begins with those who live in that society. One at a time. Little by little. Verse 2. Though they say, as the Lord lives... Surely they swear falsely. Jeremiah says, even though the men of Jerusalem speak such godly words like, as the Lord lives, which outwardly would seem okay. It would seem to recognize the the, the sovereignty of God. Which in reality, they're swearing falsely. They may say, as the Lord lives, but they're swearing falsely. Because their actions don't match what they say. Their words don't match their works. In 1 Samuel 19, 6, it says of Saul, So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Speaking of David, Jonathan was standing up for David. Saul was Jonathan's father. And so Saul swore, Okay, as the Lord lives, I won't kill David. Yet you go down a couple of more verses. Verses 9 through 10, it says, The distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear. He had told, hey, don't worry. As the Lord did, I promise, I swear. I swear to God. I won't kill him. A few minutes later, time-wise, I'm not sure, but a few verses later, he says, he tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. So Jeremiah's search for one righteous man was in vain. Nothing but truth is good enough for God. When we pray and when we sing, when we speak, when we serve, nothing will close the door to God faster or make us more unacceptable to God than hypocrisy, lying, or, or, or pretending. Because God sees right through us. We can't fool him. God sees right through us and he refuses to listen to be close to God we have to be honest with him so after Jeremiah comes up empty-handed after searching high and low throughout the city you know for one righteous man listen to what he says to the Lord in verse 3 o Lord are not your eyes on the truth you have stricken them but they have not grieved you have consumed them but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Jeremiah says, Lord, you struck your people, but they haven't paid any attention. You crushed them, but they refused to be corrected. You see, after God had done this to them, they didn't turn away from all their evil ways. Instead, they continued in their sin. And And Jeremiah says, they made their faces harder than rock. They just got obstinate and stubborn. They refuse to repent. And then Jeremiah seems to have remembered that the people he saw on his search. Well, you know, these were the poor people. Notice what he says in verse 4. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. Meaning now, okay, because they were poor, they, they were foolish. They, 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 weren't, they didn't have the knowledge that they needed, okay? For they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Jeremiah says, okay, well, that's why we couldn't find them. You know, these were the poor people we went to. You know, they're they're ignorant. They're foolish. So maybe they can be excused. Then he goes to the great men. Look at verse 5. I will go to the great men and speak to them. For they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Now, great men are speaking of the upper classes. He says, hey, I'll go speak to the upper class. Because for sure, hey, they know the ways of the Lord. But even the leaders who knew God's laws and understood his words about the coming judgment, they had rejected him too. They were the ones who were supposed to teach and guide the people, but instead they led them into sin. So Jeremiah observed the poor and the foolish who were in the dark when it came to God's ways. And he realized they weren't learning God's laws from their leaders. They weren't learning God's laws from the leaders. So so God's search in Jerusalem was over. It was finished. There were no true followers in any level of society, in the poor or the upper classes. Jeremiah realizes that. Even though they know the way, but because of the wickedness of their hearts, they also have thrown off God's yoke and broken his chains. No righteous man could be found, so the city can't be spared God's judgment. Jeremiah confirms it. He confirms that because moral conditions are so bad, there's nothing that can stop the enemy's attack. The people are just as helpless as the domesticated work animals, the beast of burdens, who, it says, having broken their yoke, find themselves in the middle of of a forest of wild animals. Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, let's, let's finish verse 5. It says, um, But I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Verse 6, Therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the, uh, of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces. Because, notice, their transgressions are many, their backslidings have increased. They've thrown off the yoke of God. They've broken the bonds between man and God. Here's what Jeremiah is actually saying in verse 6. He says, when the people are out of contact with God, they have no inner defenses. And he says, they're going to fall to prey. They're going to fall, fall prey to every evil attack or pressure of the enemy. The next thing Jeremiah speaks about is ungratefulness in verses 7 through 9. Notice verse 7. How shall I pardon your sin? How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. So God now asks the questions How can I pardon you? Even your children have turned away from me. And God held these people responsible for their children's sins because even the children followed their parents' example. The sin of leading others astray, especially our children, by our example, is something that God will hold us accountable for. Because it was God who had prospered them and fed them until they were full. But instead of being grateful, they deserted God. And they gave their loyalty to idols that are not God's at all. God said, in their perverseness and rebellion, they thanked me by committing adultery and by lining up at the brothels, which is the, har- the harlot's houses. And this refers to their faithlessness to God. And it represents spiritual adultery. But it could also refer to the impure ritual, ritual practices of the Canaanite religions That practiced sacred prostitution as part of their custom. So it would seem that from uh, Jeremiah's accusation that the people were actually grossly immoral among themselves. Now, listen to how God speaks about his people in verse 8. They were like well-fed lusty stallions, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. He says they were like well-fed stallions, wild with desire each lusting for his neighbor's wife. Their wickedness had no boundaries. Nothing or no one seemed to be off limits to them. So with conditions like this being so widespread, the people hadn't given any reason for God to forgive them. What's the big sin in our nation today? It's sexual sin. Only we don't call it that. But God still calls adultery sin. What a sad picture of our society today. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 3, Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you, Christians. Such sins have no place among God's people. And so he says in verse 9, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? In other words, God has no choice but to punish them. The next sin that God deals with is unfaithfulness in verses 10 through 19. Let's begin with verse 10. Go up, on her wall, go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. So God now commands his people's sin to be turned back on their own heads. He says, he says you know, go down the rows of the vineyards. And destroy the grapevines. Strip the branches from the vines. Because these people don't belong to the Lord. Isaiah said in chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. There's a song about his disappointing vineyard. God says in those verses. Now I will sing for the one I love a song. Uh, Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. And again, the vineyard is Israel. He was waiting for the sweet grapes, again, his people to to be right with God. He waited for that harvest, um, but it says the grapes grew bitter. He says, Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could, notice, God's saying, What more could I have done? for you for my vineyard that I have not already done he said when I expected sweet grapes why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed a place overgrown with briars and thorns and I will command the clowns notice to drop no rain on it The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. God commands the enemy to bring about destruction on the vineyard, which is Judah. But God says, hey, don't completely wipe it out. Don't completely bring them to the end. Just leave a scattered few left alive. It seems like the nation is to be cut down to the ground where only a, 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 a stem is left. Why? So that later on, new life could start again from the root. But for now, full punishment has to be carried out because, notice what he says in verse 11 because for the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. In fact, they purposely refused to believe the warnings of the true prophets of God. Verse 12, they have lied about the Lord and said, it is not he, notice, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The people believe the words of the false prophets. Who said, hey guys, you don't need to be worried about anything. Everything's going to be okay. This isn't going to happen to you. But notice what Jeremiah said in verse 13. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Jeremiah says, hey, God's prophets are, are all windbags, man. They don't really speak for me, God says they false prophets. The false predictions of disaster is going to fall on them. You see, the people refuse to hear God's message. And they refuse to hear God's message by saying, you know what? Ah, it'll never come true. And by saying the prophets, hey, they really didn't have the authority. And that the punishment would fall on somebody else. Now, you see, this this refusal wasn't because the prophets failed to do their job, but because the people failed to listen and to believe to the prophet's message. You see, once the message is given, the messenger's job is done. The responsibility now lies in the hands of the receiver of the message. The prophet and his people both have responsibilities. The prophet's job is to faithfully deliver God's message, and the people's job is to apply it to their lives. Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is at work in us. That's his part. So we do all that we can, and God does what we can't do. He give, you see, he gives us a responsibility in this salvation as well. Verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts. Notice, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. God speaks to Jeremiah again. The word of God is thought to be full of divine power and accomplishes great things here here it's called a fire here it's a fire that consumes the wicked now the punishment is harsh but it's fair you see and too many times we, we we think that that you know when when harsh punishment is needed that oh that that that, that couldn't be that couldn't be God's will we want this this little old gentle God sitting in a rocking chair and just, you know, patting everybody. Oh, that's okay. I understand. You know, you're just flesh and you're weak. No. He's given us everything we need to be victorious, to love Him, to serve Him. Therefore, the punishment is hard, harsh. You know, the, the you know, the greater, the, 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 we, the more we know, the, the greater responsibility we have. And if we don't fulfill it, then the harsher the punishment. Too much, to whom much is given, much is required. The punishment is harsh, but it's fair. They're deserving of it. Verse 15. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar. O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It's an ancient nation. It's a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Jeremiah speaks about the nation again that's going to be used by God to punish Judah. And he no doubt is referring to the enemy from the north that he spoke about in chapter 4, verse 6. Babylon was really an ancient nation. The old Babylonian empire lasted from about 1900 B.C. to 1550 B.C. And even earlier kingdoms had been around as early as 3000 B.C., but Babylon, in Jeremiah's day, would soon rebel against Assyrian rule. It would, it would form its own army, and it would conquer Assyria, and it would become the next major world power. When he descri- what he describes in verses 16 through 18 would bring a lot of terror to even the bravest people. Notice verse now, 16 through 18. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty men. And they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Nevertheless, in those days, said the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. Thank God. He said their arrows are going to be deadly. Again, speaking of the enemy that's coming to bring judgment upon them. The enemy that God's going to use as his instrument. Their arrows are going to be deadly. Their soldiers are going to be mighty warriors. He says, and when these people come in, they're going to eat up everything you have. They're going to devour and destroy everything. The fortified cities, the wall cities that you think are so indestructible, hey, they're all going to fall right in front of your unbelieving eyes. And God's sword will do what swords do. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians were totally capable of being cruel enough to carry out exactly what God described described here in verses 16 through 18. Even with these words of doom, there are still words of hope. Because notice what he said again in 18. He said, even in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. These words have now become almost like a, a broken record. But God tells us over and over again that he won't wipe us out. But that's just like our God. Even in the darkest times, he brings a hint of hope. If there's any hope, you know, he'll bring it. God has to punish, but you know, he doesn't enjoy it. Verse 19. And it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. The people asked God, why does the Lord our God, or to Jeremiah, why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? And God does not hesitate to tell them why. He says, first of all, because you've forsaken me. Because you have a backsliding heart. And this separation from God is to end the misery of exile in a land that's not yours. The separation from God is to end in the misery of being in captivity, sent to another land. A land that's not theirs. One that they're not familiar with. You see, every backslidden heart knows how miserable it is to be in a strange land. Where you don't belong. You know, when you're, when you're in that backslidden state, it's, it's like being in a strange land. You're uncomfortable. You're, you're not enjoying it. it. You know, it's like you're in a, you know you're in a different place. You're not where you should be. You're not, you're where you don't belong. And then the next sin that God accuses them of is unconcern in verses 20 through 31. But another reason why God is doing these things to them is spiritual stupidity. Look at verses 20 through 21. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Foolish people, they don't have understanding. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. You know, have you ever talked to somebody and and knowing that they haven't heard a word that you said? Jeremiah told the people that their eyes and their ears don't do them any good because they refuse to see or hear God's message. And the people of Judah and Israel were foolishly deaf when God promised them such blessings for obedience and then destruction for disobedience. When God speaks through His Word, through His messengers, if we don't listen, we're hurting ourselves. God's message will never change us unless we change us unless we listen to it, unless we take it in and apply it to our lives. Why is God doing these things? Another reason is a lack of reverence for God. This point is made notice in verses 22 through 25. He says, do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual degree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though it's waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. But your iniquities, notice, your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. He says, don't you guys fear me? Now, this isn't the kind of fear that, you know, you, you, you know you're afraid of a bully kind of person that, you know, is going to hurt you or, or you do you harm. No, it, it, it's, the word fear means, it means to revere. It means to reverence. He says, man, don't you have any reverence for me? He says in verse 22, will you not tremble at my presence? You know, just recognizing who I am and and who you are. Will you not tremble at my presence? Well, you won't, especially if you don't reverence him. And then God's creative power in the world should cause men to stand in awe of him. He speaks about the ocean not going beyond the the, the shore that he set, the boundaries that he set. So again, God's creative power in the world should cause men to stand in awe of him when they're just looking around at creation. But they're blind to it. And in verse 22, we're reminded that the physical universe obeys God's will for it the stars the planets the ocean, the animals they are all they're all in obedience to god's will they don't break the boundaries that god set for them the laws that god set for them but that's not often true of man he uses the ocean for example here he, you know it, you know you've you've seen how amazing the ocean is how powerful it is but yet the ocean is in unity with all of its creatures you don't see the, the ocean trying to you know spit out or get rid of all the fish and all the creatures that are living. Get out of here. I don't want you living in here. You don't see the birds, the seagulls, the fish, the tiny little sand crabs, the waves, or whatever they are, all wanting to get away from the ocean. They were both all doing what God has created them to do. Living in unity together according to God's will. But yet the sea of life is in rebellion with God. People wanting to be something or do something other than God created them to to, to be or to do. Men wanting to be women. Women wanting to be men. Totally, again, in rebellion with God's creation and God's will. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This was a well-known saying in Judah. But these people gave no reverence to God at all. Instead, they had a defiant and rebellious heart, verse 23 says. Listen to Romans 1, 19 through 23 in the New Living Translation. It says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, those people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse. Notice, they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Not only were they guilty of a lack of reverence for God, they were guilty of social injustices. Notice verses 26 through 28. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie and wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage is full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy, they do not defend. Jeremiah says wicked men, they lie in wait. They set snares. There were no boundaries for the wicked or to their wickedness. He says they've grown fat, which means wealthy. And how have they grown wealthy? By trampling on the rights of the fatherless and the needy. Taking advantage of them. And lastly, why is God doing these things to the people? As he said earlier, why are you doing these things to people? Because of religious perversity. Look at 29 and 30. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. This is the astonishing and horrible thing. It was widespread in the land. Look at verse 31 as we close. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? The expression here, the words the priests rule by their own power, means the priests rule at their beck and call. They do whatever they want, they're false prophets. And this perversity had taken hold of prophets. It had taken hold of priests and the people. Every level of society was, was corrupted, infected with moral rottenness. And God said in verse 31, my people love it. They love it. Which showed that their conscience was dead. No feeling. Past feeling, Ephesians four nineteen. And that all perception of their wisdom was gone. And that there was no remedy for that, for them, but the fiery judgment of God. It also shows that the the, the contagious nature of evil, moral evil, the dreaded possibilities of national corruption against which we are duty-bound to watch and to pray. Here's the question. What will you do in the end, he says? How far will you go when their wickedness has totally overtaken them? How deep into poverty, I'm sorry, how deep into depravity will they fall? Where will they go when God's judgment comes? What what are people going to do in the end? When wickedness has totally overtaken them. And they have gone so deep into depravity. And when they fall, where are they going to go? When God's judgment comes. The sad thing is it's, it's in the impossibility of a satisfactory answer. It may be to the point where they can't give a satisfactory answer. What they're going to do. It leads them to the edge of a bottomless pit. Or they can only tremble and pray that none of this ever comes to this place. Thank God that these kinds of prophets and priests are the exception to the rule. That when false prophets come, God has provided a remedy against them. How? Through his infallible word. You want to recognize a false prophet? Read the word. Compare the word with what he says. That's what when, when anybody speaks of the word, compare the word with what that person is saying. In his spirit, because you see, when his spirit dwells in you, his spirit is one with the spirit of God. It's the same spirit. The Holy Spirit will raise a red flag when something is said that just doesn't sit right. The spirit bears witness with the spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads us into all truth. That's why He's so important. He's he's, he's a necessity. He's not a luxury. We need Him. He's like air to our lungs. And we're to test everything that all human ministers to say by these tests. The infallible Word of God. And by the Holy Spirit. So seeing how much depends upon them... And what power for good or bad they can have, the people, pray sincerely that God sends only faithful men. Because those that, that preach the gospel depends a lot upon them. And it can be for the good or it can be for the bad. They, they, they have a tremendous power to do one or the other. So we need to pray sincerely for, that God will send only faithful men and women into his ministry. And, and to keep those who are already faithful, to keep them faithful and looking up. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you again for this wonderful book, Lord. And Father, help us to understand, Lord. Father, our need for the word of God and for the Holy Spirit, Lord, It's not enough to know about them. We need to know them. As Paul said, let the word of God dwell richly in us. And as Paul also said, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. May the Holy Spirit feel comfortable in this temple. May there not be any corrupt thing that lives in this temple. It would cause the Holy Spirit discomfort or a reason to not dwell in this temple, God. For light and darkness cannot dwell together. There's no fellowship between Satan and God. And Lord, may we cleanse ourselves, as Paul said. Cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of sin. And not cater to the flesh, God but submit to the Spirit of God. So, Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Sunday morning, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 33, as we finish chapter 10. It's, a, it's going to be, Paul's going to give additional...